The Gym Day Podcast is brought to you by Kroger, fresh for everyone. Now batting, number one in our hearts. At least he'd like to think so. It's the Gym Day Podcast. Hi again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Gym Day Podcast. Thanks for uh, checking us out wherever you are checking us out. And we are worldwide. And we've said that before. We have, uh, I've said this a thousand times that we have this treat and that treat. But to me, as a broadcasting nerd, this is a massive treat. And I hope it is for you as well. He is a Bengals legend. Four times he went to the Pro Bowl. A longtime NFL analyst, uh, has some Super Bowls to his credit, golf, Olympics. I mean, this guy's done it all. And a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame is a winner of the Pete Rosell Award for Excellence in Broadcasting. But anyone around uh, Cincinnati and those that uh, have lived and died by 700 WLW over the years know him as one of the godfathers, if not the godfather of sports talk. He is Mr. Bob Trumpy. Bob, how you doing? I'm doing fine, Jim. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Uh, that that what you just described incorporates an awful lot of years. Oh, it's your your resume is unbelievable. I mean, uh, you know, some people might think, "Oh, yeah, I did sports talk for a long time." But there was so much more that you did. Uh, as you look back, is it uh is it unbelievable what you accomplished in broadcasting? No, no what what the, the uh, the opportunity is the unbelievable part. Uh, I, uh, I I don't know if you know the story, but uh, I was still a player with the Bengals, and my uh, wife's family lived in Southern California. So after the football season, we generally went out there, even with our two boys, uh, for six weeks after the football season was over, and then we'd come back and do something. I go out to Los Angeles in 1975, and turn on the radio uh, because you're always on the freeway somewhere in Los Angeles. Yeah. And Bill Russell, the retired center of the Boston Celtics, the Hall of Famer, uh, had a radio show on this radio station that I stumbled across, and I don't remember the name of the radio station or the call letters or anything like that. But I, I started listening to him, and... I wasn't really interested in what he was talking about. He sounded like he was having a great time. And that's what sold me on the idea of, uh, wait a minute, uh, would that work in Cincinnati? And, of course, I'm sitting in Los Angeles. What is that, 20 million people, 15 million people? It's a whole lot more than Cincinnati. Yeah, well, uh, and freeways everywhere, and to be – to do anything in Los Angeles, you got to be on the freeway, so people are in their cars a lot. And I think, well, uh, Cincinnati has Columbus on the north, uh, Louisville, Lexington on the south, Indianapolis on the west, and kind of Pittsburgh and West Virginia on the east. Would, would that total reach what L.A. does? Because half of L.A. is the Pacific Ocean. Right. You know? So... I, I, I mentioned it to my wife, and she said, uh, radio? What do you mean radio? You're going to be a disc jockey? I, <laughs> no, I don't think I'll be a disc jockey. Anyway, come you back. You got the pipes for it, though. <laughs> uh, 
uh, yeah, uh, come back to Cincinnati and approach WLW Radio, uh, who then had the Reds, had the Bengals, and a guy named Charlie Murdoch, who, who was certainly famous in Cincinnati Radio, was interested until he mentioned it to the, the parties that they carry, the Cincinnati Reds and the Cincinnati Bengals. And suddenly I was no longer uh, a prospect for doing a, a, a sports talk show in Cincinnati. So I had to go to another station, and I went to WCKY. And at, and at that time, they were they were literally playing uh, albums, elevator music, however you want to describe it. Uh, but they did carry. Uh, they were a CBS radio affiliate. They did carry Monday Night Football during the 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 football season. Uh, Jack Buck and Hank Stram. So there was that much sports. Uh, on this station. Uh, they had a guy named Bill Sorrell who uh, did the sports and uh, smoked a pipe and was a terrific guy. And I started my career being a guest on an hour-long show on WCKY one night a week. And that that started my career. Uh, I mean, as soon as I started doing it, uh, I loved it. I have, It was great fun, and I had wonderful contacts with Reds players and, and uh, that helped. They helped. And so that began it. And then uh, it, it, it was a totally accidental career uh, that ended up being 30 plus years broadcasting for the local radio stations and NBC and CBS and whatever else, doing golf, the Olympics. Uh, anthology stuff that they wanted me to do. I, it was not what I intended, but it's what I ended up with. It's terrific, and uh, you know, fit- how did you start? What, what was your first break? <laughs> oh, wow, you know, I have never told this story before. It's well, interesting tell it. that you ask this. I'm working. Uh, I'm still in college. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, know that Westerville. Wow, nice job. Yes, from the Ville. Uh, Graduated from Otterbein. Wow, you like Googled me or something. (laughs) I was going, it was then Otterbein College, it's now Otterbein University. Uh, So I went there because it was a small school and they had a a pretty decent broadcasting department where you could get hands-on right away. You know, it was all about getting a tape then. Um, So I... I started working covering high school sports when I was a junior. I interned early. I decided, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to wait around. I'm going to try to get experience. So I ended up getting a job as a producer at one of the local affiliates. It was the ABC affiliate. And, and I wasn't on air. I was producing, but I was a senior in college, and I was trying to decide, wow, I already got a job here. Well, I don't know why I need a degree, degree. But I was going to school full-time I had like 15 to 18 hours worth of classes plus I was working 50 60 hours a week I was just yeah my senior year you didn't have any weekends did you no no well I I mean I would come into class and I'd see everyone uh (laughs) they'd be cramming you know right before the class I'm like there's a test today damn it (laughs) (laughs) I mean there are days I didn't know there was a test so I, I just 
did what I could to get through. I did get the degree on time. But this, this was 1990, February. Buster Douglas from Columbus, Ohio, just knocked out Mike Tyson. Biggest upset in boxing history. Agreed. Maybe sports history. I don't know. Muhammad Ali over Sonny Liston. Yeah, that's good, true. But I agree with you. Yeah. No, it's it's up there. It's in the sentence. Um, so he, this happens and Columbus goes crazy. And all of a sudden we're doing all this programming for Buster Douglas. And he's got all this parade and stuff. And before the fight, he had Don King. Your guy, Don, Don King, King, had... By the way, this is supposed to be about you, and now we're making this about no, no, me. No, 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 no. You don't know what you're going to get on a podcast, so this is what you're getting. Go right ahead. Don King was managing both Buster Douglas and Mike Tyson and paid no attention to Buster Douglas beforehand. But then all of a sudden, once Buster wins and he's the, you know, the toast of the town and the toast of the country, he's all of a sudden buddying up to Buster Douglas. So he comes to Columbus, and there's there's this big to-do about Buster and Don King, and no one could get Don King to talk because he was bad-mouthing Buster, and this was this big controversy. So I went to this event as a producer on a Friday night. I'll never forget it. I, I believe it was at a local church, and all the reporters were there, and he would talk to no one. And everyone, it was a Friday, so all the reporters left, and I stayed for this event on a Friday night. It was like three, four hours, a bunch of local leaders talking. And Don King was there, and I finally cornered him. And I said, Don, I introduced myself. I know these other reporters will interview you, and they might take you out of context. How about you come on the 11 o'clock news live? That way we won't be able to edit you, and you can just... We'll give you an open-ended question, and you can just say what you want, thinking that he, if he's going to do it, it's going to be with one of our anchors. And he said, yeah, I'll do that. I like that. And he goes, who's going to do it? And I said, well, the reporter that was here earlier who had ticked him off. You mean that such and such? And he's like, oh, I'll do it, but I'll only do it with you. Oh, thank you, Don King. So I call back to the station. Here I am, a senior in college who wants to be on the air. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure, Jim. Yeah. Yeah, he'll only do it with you. Yeah, we believe you. So I had to get on our photographer and another person was out there. And they're like, oh, it's legit. That's what he said. So this was 10.50 p.m. We go on at 11. Gotcha. So here I am. And I have, you know, I've, I've done stuff in broadcasting. I've never done a live shot on local news. So at the top of the news... I all of a sudden have the story of the week and I'm live with Don King. And then yes. the interview went off great. And, and the broadcast career is underway. Yes. Don King. <laughs> Don King of all people helped start uh, my career. <laughs> I mean, but it was your intention to be in broadcasting. Yes. No, it was my yeah, intention I mean, to be on the air. You got an education in broadcasting. But yeah. They they didn't teach you anything, I, and I had no no broadcasting classes. But I'm sure they didn't teach you anything in broadcasting that you applied in that interview with Don King, right? None, nothing in a book can you know nothing yeah. in a book can teach you how to conduct yeah, an I'm interview. I'm standing or... here next to Don King, who is the manager of some of the most famous people in the world of boxing, <laughs> yes. ladies and gentlemen. 
here we go. And I'm this little college kid. That's a great story. Yeah. Well, I wasn't prepared to be on the air. I didn't have a a tie on. I had like this T-shirt and pullover. I wasn't shaved. Yeah, I wasn't shaved that day. (laughs) So it was just down and dirty and raw. But everyone was chasing him all week, and I had uh, all of like five minutes to prepare. Yeah. So well, I, I mean, you, you mentioned boxing, and in my case, I had no idea where what I was about to do was going to go, uh, how it was going to travel. I had no clue whatsoever. But when the show, when I moved to WLW from WCKY, it became my show, my responsibility. I, I had to take care of every second of that radio show. So... I got on the phone with an awful lot of people, and you mentioned boxing. Uh, I, I sat in front of uh, Joe Frazier. Oh, Carmen wow. Leo. Uh, I, uh, oh, can you hear the family phone ringing? That's all Sorry, right, man. This podcast is down and dirty and raw. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Leave the phone call in. Uh, yeah. Anyway. On the phone, I talked to Muhammad Ali. On the phone, I talked to Angelo Dundee, his manager. Uh, I, I mean, doing that radio show uh, for all those years was an absolute safari five days a week. I had no idea where it was going. I had a, a big hand in planning it, but I had absolutely no idea how it was going to go on any night that I went on the air. And I think that was the best thing about the job I had. That's what I loved about doing football too. I, I thought was what was going to happen before the game. And then with your, with your broadcast partner, you, you, you kind of plan that out and it either does or doesn't go that way. So there, it was a safari every time they turned the mic on and I was there. Uh, the only downside, uh, I was gone uh, from my family for birthdays, for anniversaries, for, for uh, I didn't miss many Christmases, but Thanksgiving, New Year's. I took them with me a lot, but for the most part, I was gone a whole bunch during that time, Jim. Yeah, I can, I can totally relate to that. This year of uh, 2020, and I've been doing Reds baseball, I don't know, for 20 years, I guess now. And I, I couldn't remember being home on Memorial Day, Mother's Day, yeah, Father's yeah. Day, July 4th, yeah, certainly that's, that's, not. That's the downside of it. But yeah. uh, I don't know about you, but during my broadcast career, when I traveled, uh, Delta was huge here, and mm-hmm. I could get anywhere I needed to go in the NFL without changing planes. Right. Uh, and you and I both know that is a huge advantage. Uh, and uh, they always, uh, we always flew first class. We always got picked up by a driver. We didn't have to rent a car. We didn't, we were treated wonderfully by the networks that I worked for. So that made it as easy as possible. But still, I got, when I'd call home, my wife would, would always ask me, well, what's the wallpaper look like in your hotel room? Uh, <laughs> or the drapes? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it was. It, I was constantly reminded I was not home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no doubt. 
What was it like? This is a broad question, but in the late 60s and the 70s when you were a player, what was it like in Cincinnati being a professional athlete? And was there much uh, – were you around Reds players much? Uh, this, you know, pre-broadcasting, did you guys mix and mingle at all? Or was it because you had different uh, seasons that uh, you didn't come in contact with the Reds much? Yeah, then? look, the truth is we started in 1968, and uh, the Reds' uh, tremendous run started in 70. Right. And uh, in the press, we made quite a bit of news because we were new. Uh, But, look, when the baseball season started, we knew we were the stepsister. Uh, No matter what we did, we were not going to get the bulk of the attention. And then, remember, we were both tenants at Riverfront Stadium. Right. Uh, I made the acquaintance of a guy named Jim Ferguson. Recognize the name? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Red's longtime PR director. He still comes around, Fergie. Yep. And uh, I I lived in Glendale, still live in Glendale. I live in Glendale here north of Cincinnati. Dick Wagner lived down the street. And Jim Ferguson uh, hung around Glendale a lot. So we became buddies buddies we became friends and uh he said one to me one day he said uh have you ever been in the reds clubhouse and this is obviously our off season and i said uh no i'd love to go i don't even know where it is in riverfront stadium uh, and he said well meet me down there tomorrow and this is during the baseball season i said sure so i i drive down there he gives me gets me a parking pass and everything is right and i walk in the door and, uh, oh, my God, there's Johnny Bench. There's Tony Perez. There's Pete Rose. Uh, and then I noticed the thing that defines what you asked me. What was it like to be a professional athlete in Cincinnati in the 60s and the 70s? In front of uh, George Foster, Concepcion, Bench, Rose, were bushel baskets literally bushel baskets full of fan mail. Uh, it, it was unbelievable. We, we had little, down at uh, Spinning Field, we had little cubby holes that were maybe four inches by four inches. Yeah. And we may get a few envelopes in there a week. Uh, the, these Reds players literally had bushel baskets full of fan mail sitting in front of the locker. And, and I said to Fergie, what is that? Why are those bushel beds? That's fan mail. What? you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and I left there thinking, we will never be able to compete press-wise, prestige-wise, with the Cincinnati Reds. It, it will never come close. This is a base, a professional baseball town. This is, as we learned, uh, one of the greatest uh, assemblages of professional baseball athletes that any franchise had ever assembled. They proved that in the early 70s. And, and I kind of lived with that and and until I started meeting some of the guys on a personal level. Bench and I played in a, a, a bunch of golf tournaments sponsored by American Airlines for uh, several years. And then 
I met Pete Rose, and and then uh, uh, Sparky Anderson was still around. And then John McNamara, and then uh, Bill Fisher, and and then Tom Seaver was a big uh, nut on USC graduates being drafted by the uh, NFL. But my first impression, Jim, was the bushel baskets full of fan mail. I wow. And, and I, when I walked out of there with Jim Ferguson, I said, uh, "Look, when 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 I get a, a a fan mail and something to sign, it's a big deal for me." And my wife takes it out of the envelope, sign it, we, and we religiously send it back. What do these guys do? And he said, "Well, uh, they have stamps with their names on it." And uh, my daughter Julie does Johnny Bench's. Uh, fan mail so i, I mean it, it kept hitting me in the face my god we we are such second-class citizens here it's unbelievable but it didn't bother me i was playing professional football so yeah. i thought i was a big deal nobody else did but i thought i was a big deal. oh no you were a big deal it's changed the landscapes changed a little bit over the years the nfl is so big yes now. it has yes it has but 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 again i mean we came into existence during a period of time right. where the Cincinnati Reds owned, almost owned, uh, professional baseball for a period of six or seven years, which is just amazing. It was fun to watch them. Uh, I enjoyed it a great deal. Uh, uh, they were fun to be around. They were all interested in football. So we got along well. That's great. Did it help you since you started uh – dabbling in radio mid 70s or 75 76 whatever it was the popularity of the reds did that in turn help you oh with- yeah sure sure absolutely and the fact that uh, um lw was the, the the voice of the reds and it was a 50,000 watt clear channel station and uh i think when we kept track of uh who could hear us and and in the winter, when the sun went down, um, we heard from 38 stat- states, 38 states, and I think three provinces in Canada, uh, and uh, so we were heard over two thirds of the country, uh, like you were sitting next to the right. tower. My parents had a uh, had a vacation place in uh, Dunedin Beach, Florida. They lived in Illinois and uh, they used they could drive to this little uh, it was a bridge but it was a a bridge about a uh, hundred yards long and sit on the edge of the bridge and listen to the radio show that I was doing at night from Cincinnati Ohio so the power of the radio station uh, yes certainly helped the the uh, the attention that the Cincinnati Reds got, yes, certainly helped. Uh, Pete Rose was a consistent guest on the show uh, as a player, as a manager. I'd see him someplace and, and say, how about coming on next Tuesday night at 6.30, and he'd be there next Tuesday night at 6.29. Um, uh, he, he was the most consistent guest. But Tommy Hume was on my radio show an awful lot. We became pretty good friends. Love Tom Hume. Uh, yeah, the other thing... Uh, I, I, I got to tell you, Jim, is that uh, uh, I don't remember what year this was, 
but the radio station came to me and said, uh, because we cover the Reds, uh, we're sending you to Tampa. That, that's when they were still training in Tampa and living in the uh, Bill Watson's International Inn Motel. Uh, we're sending you to Tampa for two weeks to cover the Reds. So I did my radio show from uh, uh, by the pool at Bill Watson's International Inn. And, and that really uh, got me very close to an awful lot of players on the team because they saw me every day and I hung out in the bullpen at, at uh, Al Lopez Field and McNamara was the manager at that time. So it really helped me, really helped the show. And, uh, you know, we had an awful good time. We didn't deal as much with baseball as we did with their personalities. So um, that helped a lot. And uh, that's when I really got to know Brenneman. Um, until then. Who? I mean, he, uh, <laughs> the old Brenneman, not the young Brenneman. Oh, uh, I vaguely Brenham. heard of him. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, I got to know him because uh, uh, my producer, Doug Kidd, and I would go to every baseball game. Uh, we didn't travel. We stayed in, in Tampa. But we'd sit down in front of Marty every day, all day long for the games and then do the radio show at night. And then um, you know, we'd have breakfast, lunch, or dinner almost every day. That's when we became uh, friends, buds. Wow, and uh, boy, I, had... I, I'm sure you feel under normal circumstances, Jim, that you you have access to the clubhouse. Yeah, you have access to. Uh, I mean, you're you're standing there beside the dugout. You can you can see these guys sweat. I mean, your relationship with the players has got to be a mirror image of what mine was. Uh, because you're around them so much. By the way, are you a lot in the clubhouse now? No, we are not. There is <clears throat> no media whatsoever in the clubhouse at all. Uh, Closest I come is sitting about seven rows yeah, you, behind you the dugout during them. home games. Yeah, you can't travel with them. No, there is not one uh, MLB uh, team that is broadcasting road games. We do the road games from a studio in Cincinnati off no, of monitors. No, I was anxious, anxious, very anxious to see how that was going to work out. And I noticed when you guys were, uh, uh, the team was in Milwaukee, uh, and Chris Welsh and Tom Brenneman were, were doing the game that they, uh, people may or may not know, when you do a home game, you know the producer and director, and, and you can tell the producer, feature this, watch this guy, and you get used to the way the broadcasters broadcast, but when you're from Cincinnati broadcasting a game televised by a TV crew in Milwaukee, right. you, you may not even know the name of the producer or the director, and they're showing uh, the pictures to favor Milwaukee, not Cincinnati. And, and I, I, I watched it with interest to see how they were going to do it. And actually, I thought uh, Brenneman and Welsh did an, an excellent job of of keeping everybody up to date, but you could tell there was a delay. Yeah, that that that's the one thing. There's going to be a little bit of a delay, but there yeah, is an edict. There's no that, way around that. Yeah, there is an edict in Major League Baseball. These feeds are universal feeds, so the home team, the truck who's producing the game, has to keep it even as possible. 
to do both teams. So that really, for what I do, when I'm at least doing sidelines and not calling the game, um, it's tough to be a sideline reporter when you're not actually on the sidelines or you have no access to the players other than a computer interview. You know, and like you know, just hanging out with those players like you did in, in Tampa, a, a lot of the information you get is just shooting the breeze, Absolutely. standing you around spring 100% training. Correct. And and if you, I, I'm I'm sure you feel like if you don't have the access to the players that you used to have, you feel like, man, I'm not doing my job I, here. I walk out of there after every game like, wow, that stunk. I feel like I didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. Feel like I'm not contributing. Yeah, but 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 again, Jim, that that's a product of the situation. Yeah. That's not a product of what you are or uh, not doing. Uh, I mean, it's just a situation that you're in. So yeah. But it's... I I mean I I I enjoyed a lot of the sideline work I did before I got up in the booth and. Uh, uh, I actually interviewed Burt Reynolds one time. Really? Uh, yeah, at the at the Orange Bowl when Florida State under Bobby Bowden was uh, trying to win the national championship. Yeah, he was a former former Florida yeah. State player. What was he yeah. like? Uh, short, <laughs> very short. <laughs> As a matter of fact, how short? Like what? Are, you're like six. Well, they they put him on a plastic milk crate. Come on! I'm dead serious <laughs> to stand next to me. Bert uh, Reynolds is, in the '70s was uh-huh. like a hunk of a man. They put, had to put him on a milk crate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dead serious. Uh, and we looked about the same height, but uh, he was standing on a plastic milk crate, and and. Uh, I, I see him walking up to me, and he's got about four or five people with him, w- with something in somebody's hand, and I wasn't exactly sure what it was until he got there, and he probably just jumped up on it. He was excited about Florida State's chances, and and uh, <laughs> did the interview and jumped out and went away. And as I remember Florida State won. I'm not. I, I did a bunch of them, and I but I certainly remember that one. Oh, the bandit had to step on a milk crate. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm hurt. That hurts a me. With somebody somewhere, somebody from NBC, their, their PR department uh, sent me a picture of it. This is before they we had the internet. Sent me yeah. a picture of Burt Reynolds standing on a milk carton, milk crate. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. You never know, do you? You never know. When you look, just another broadcast, and when you look back, who, who are, just name drop, who are some people you talked to, who are some of your favorite people that you came across, or anything that stood out that was unusual, maybe not as unusual as Burt Reynolds standing on no, a milk crate? I, it, 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 it's a very short list, uh, and... Uh, I I know how football players feel, smell, uh, what they feel like before and after a game, on all that stuff. I was never really impressed with talking with a with a football player, but I I had Lee Trevino on my show, Jack Nicholas on my show, but but there are there there were not interviews, but my broadcast career put me in a situation where because of 
who I was, who I knew, uh, and who knew me, I had the opportunity to play two days of golf with Jesse Owens. Oh, wow. And to play one day of, go- one day of golf with Neil Armstrong. Oh. Uh, I mean, I-, I did a bunch of interviews with Bobby Knight. Uh, I did a bunch of interviews with Pete Rose. But those two day, those three days, two days with Jesse Owens, and uh, one round of golf with with Neil Armstrong here in Cincinnati. Jesse Owens was in Dayton, wow. uh, at, at the Bogey Busters. Uh, and I, by the way, I was invited to that tournament by Paul Brown. And when I was a track athlete in high school, along with playing basketball and football, and when I showed up at the MCR South and uh, went over to my golf cart with my bag and realized that I was playing golf with Jesse Owens. Jim, I still get choked up about it. I got two days with Jesse Owens. Gosh. uh, You speak of highlights of one's career. That was it. I didn't record anything. Uh, There was no interview we were sitting in the game, same golf cart together and just shooting the breeze. And the same was true with, with Neil Armstrong. And uh, I, when I first met him, I said, Neil, I understand you don't like talking about going to the moon and back. And he said, that's right. And I said, to hell with that. We are talking about you going to the moon and back. And he started laughing. And... I, I quizzed him the whole. Way oh, around. from what I've heard, he he usually wins so, that battle. Yeah, forget who was on the air. Those are the the, the three days and the association of, with those two men that uh, probably mean the the most to me. Wow. Well, I could hear it in your voice, Bob. Uh, I'm not kidding. Every time I think about it, I, I'm a farm kid from Illinois. Yeah. And, and to to think that I had two days with Jesse Owens, highlights of my life. Oh, when you, I, I mean, you're, you're right in my wheelhouse as far as heroes. Obviously I never met Jesse Owens. I did not meet Neil Armstrong, which I, he regret. was, he was Jim. He was wonderful. He was absolutely wonderful. And I think the thing that we got along this is this is weird, but I'm going to tell you this. The thing that connected us together is he knew I was a professional football player, and he knew I played for Paul Brown, and uh, there was some connection with Paul. I, I don't remember what the connection was. And Paul was playing about two groups behind us, and Jesse and I both smoked. <laughs> so... So we, we I, I, I don't know, I, I'm 27, 28 years old. He's in his 50s. And uh, we're hiding from Paul Brown and sneaking smokes. And they, <laughs> we don't want Paul Brown to see us smoking. And we, we the, the two of us were like a couple of teenagers, you know, hiding behind the tree. It, it was, looking back on it, Jim, I'm telling you, it, it, it just... It still gives me chills. That is great. Well, listen, you got the the hair standing up on my arm right now because when truth. you think about not only sports history, 
but yep. just humankind history of Jesse Owens and yep. well, 1936. Yep. And I don't want to admit that evil idiot from Germany. I'm not even going to mention his name on this podcast, but you know who I'm talking about. Yep. For him and and their their race was the number, you know, everyone was not equal to their race according to him. And for him to stare that situation down and perform like he did in not just sports history, but humankind, when they look back at the history of what led to World War II, they always mention Jesse Owens. Yep, yep. I, I, I had the good sense to ask him uh, if uh, when he won the four medals and uh, Hitler ignored him, did he realize then uh, the, the influence that he had had on the rest of the world, and did he recognize um, how much uh, attention he was going to get when he came back to the United States? And he said, no, remember, uh, it was all on film, and film was transported to the United States, it took like four or five days to get it over here. We were on a ship. I had to wait till the end of the uh, Olympics. Uh, so that was almost uh, 10 days. And then the four or five day trip across the uh, Atlantic Ocean. No, he said, I didn't. When we landed in New York, I had no idea that uh, most of the celebration was about me. And I thought, oh, my God, you got to be kidding me. Wow. And uh, he said, I was surprised. I, I was absolutely shocked. But uh, I said, I asked him, how's your life? And he said, well, it's been a struggle. Uh, and I said, why? And he said, because I'm Jesse Owens and I won four Olympic medals. And all I can do is travel the country and talk about it. So, but... Uh, that, I don't remember anything other than that, that uh, he was the kindest gentleman and he had just gotten a graphite driver and uh, he called it the Black Widow. And uh, I don't know why I remember that. That's really weird to remember. But anyway, <laughs> uh, he, some golf pro gave him a, a graphite driver. Back in the 70s, that was a big deal. Big deal. A big deal. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, but it, it, neither one of us was very good, but we loved playing golf and hiding from Paul Brown smoking. <laughs> oh, I should I should redo your intro to this podcast. He's Do in I? the Pro Football Hall of Fame for excellence in broadcasting, Super Bowls, Pro Bowl tight end, and once snuck away like a teenager to hide and get some smokes in with Jesse Owens. With Jesse Owens. <laughs> By the way, uh, we haven't talked about uh, professional football or the Bengals, but uh, every year when the football season starts, uh, just to give you a sense of uh, my beginnings, uh, I was a 12th-round draft choice for the uh, Cincinnati Bengals. And I was telling some guys that I meet with at the bakery here where I live this morning, and he said, do you remember the draft? And I said, no, not at all. I was working in Los Angeles. Uh, but when I got here, uh, I, as a 12th round draft choice, where 
you know, just another body. But I realized uh, from the players that I met up there in Wilmington that uh, in the fourth round, the Cincinnati Bengals took a, a guy who was physically, at the time he was drafted, he was physically in the Michigan State Prison. Jesse Phillips. And I was drafted eight rounds later. (laughs) (laughs) That puts it in perspective. (laughs) I thought, if you ever want to understand uh, humble beginnings, they they took a prisoner eight rounds before me. I got a little work to do. Yeah, I, I lasted 10 years, and Jesse Phillips, I think, played for nine. Wow. You never know. You just never know. And, boy, were times different then. That wouldn't happen now. And you certainly uh, – oh, man, anyways. I, yeah. By the way, just to backtrack here, I, I said it was in my wheelhouse. I am one of the biggest space nerds on the planet. And in fact, when I played sports, I wore number eleven because of Apollo eleven. Oh, and Neil Armstrong was my guy; still is my guy. I mean, sure, I have things on that are recorded. Apart from Wester Villa, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I have things that are recorded. Like even my wife goes crazy. Can we delete these? I'm like, no. That's like you know, it's it's called moonshot. It's I, I've got so many things of the Apollo program and Apollo 11 and Neil Armstrong recorded. I will not let her delete them. I watch them over and over and over again. Really? Yes. And I'm I'm even, even they're in their descent to the moon. And I know what happens They They got 30 seconds of fuel left. And I'm I'm still tense every time. I'm like, land it, Neil, land it. And so, you know, I asked him a question on that. Did you? Uh, It's well known as you're talking about, uh, Got 30 seconds worth of fuel. Yeah. And I said, Neil, what in the hell possessed you to think that you could fly something that couldn't fly? I mean, uh, other than the reduced gravity, that's the only thing that's keeping that uh, lunar module in the air. And the only movement is from this jet or that jet. What the hell possessed you to think that you could fly it? Ah, it wasn't that big a deal. (laughs) What do you mean it wasn't that big a deal? And, and he said, well, the original landing spot, it was not going to work, and I had to find another one. Oh, okay. Well, let's just move this thing that doesn't fly right. over right. there, and it'll land properly. It, it was no big deal to him. I was absolutely astounded. Well, that's part of the reason they chose him for that monumental yep. mission, and he yep. had proved it. Boy, we're turning yep. this into space nerd talk. What the hell? It's my podcast. I don't care. When they were in training for that lunar module, flying it, he had a equipment malfunction or whatever, and he had to bail out of this training apparatus and nearly died. Had to really? parachute down to the ground, and the other astronauts say that right afterwards he went back in the office and started doing office work, and they asked him, hey, Neil, did you almost, like, bite it today? He's like, oh, yeah, malfunction. I parachuted to the ground. <laughs> No big deal, and he just went about his day. (laughs) So he was calm, cool, and collected. I hope you're enjoying our conversation with the one and only Bob Trumpy, and we will continue it after these words from Kroger. 
Hey, Reds fans, Ritz Crackers, one of America's favorite cracker brands, has new Ritz Cheese Crispers that are bound to be a crowd pleaser for you and your family. The unique combination of real rich cheese and the crispy texture make these chips a must. These light bite-sized airy chips come in two delicious flavors, cheddar and four cheese and herb. Rich cheese crispers are made with real rich cheese flavor that you can taste in every bite. They will defy your expectations for a delicious cheesy snack. Get your new Rich cheese crispers at Kroger. Love getting prices that are lower than low on backyard favorites like grill-ready hamburgers and fresh-picked strawberries? Then shop at Kroger. We give you more ways to save on the fresh you love with tools like the Kroger app, where you can find personalized coupons on top of weekly sales, plus rewards like fuel points, giving you prices that are lower than the everyday low. Kroger, fresh for everyone. All right, Bob, uh, you were, uh, man, a tri- just a tremendous influence on so many people in broadcasting. Certainly me. I was a you know, sports nerd. You listened? I listened all the time, nearly every night. Um, you know, as, as I said, I was in, in Columbus, but once you hit WLW, I think 1980, uh, um, around there. Oh my yeah, God. around there. Six o'clock every night. They got this sports talk, and they got great guests, and Bob is great, and this and that. And although sometimes, you know, I was I was fanboy back then of the Reds. I'm like, oh, he's really getting after him tonight. He's getting after him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, Jim, I, I got I got to tell you, I don't know that I would work on the air now because I was I was a long way from. Uh, politically correct then and probably am even farther away from it now and uh i i can tell you honestly that uh the radio station was very understanding uh i only had one incident where uh marge shot was the owner of the cincinnati reds and uh she didn't like something I said, and she called the radio station and, and wanted me taken off the air. And uh, the guy running the station was a guy named Bo Wood. And uh, his dad started WEVN here in Cincinnati, uh, the FM station. Yeah. Anyway, uh, anyway, uh, uh, apparently, Bo heard what I said. And Marge said, if he's on the air tomorrow night, uh, we're canceling our contract. I didn't know any of this. And so uh, the uh, the program ends, and Bo Wood comes in, and he said, you got me in a lot of trouble. Uh, Marge didn't like what you said. And he said, I, I think I got a way to uh, get around this. And I said, what? And he said, I promised her that I would fine you uh, for what you said. There would be no apology on the air, but I would. Both said I would. I'm going to find him enough money that uh, he'll never say anything like that again on the air. And I don't remember what I said. Wow. And I said, uh, "Well, how much is the fine?" And he said, "How much change you got in your pocket?" <laughs> I pulled out about sixty cents, and he said, "Let that be a lesson to you." And he took the sixty cents and left. <laughs> He had your back. That is great. And that was it. And that was the only, as I remember, that was the only complaint I ever 
I ever heard from uh, from anybody. Well, so. that's what I was. Go- that's where I was going to ask you because um, you know back then it was a little different, and then all of a sudden sports talk comes along. And at that time, at least for WLW, like you said, it's a new genre, a new show. And all of a sudden, you, someone's criticizing the hometown teams. I, I yeah. wondered how that went over uh, uh, when it first started and what the feedback you got or backlash that you got. Yeah, well, uh, actually, it was no problem. I was very respectful of uh, – I thought I was very respectful of both the Reds and the Bengals and the – Sure, there are some things that they did that I didn't like, but uh, I mean, I was a football. I was not of of, of baseball, and I honestly, Jim, I, I've racked my brain. Brain, I cannot remember what I said on the air that might have offended Marge Shot. But from what I've learned after that, it, it didn't take much yeah. to offend Marge. So, yeah. Uh, what and in yeah. fact, in fact, some people in the, inside the organization. Chief Bender, among them, said uh, she probably didn't hear you say that. Somebody told her what they heard, and so it's it, it, it's second or third hand oh, information. Yeah. What they thought they heard. By yeah, the time it gets heard. to the fifth person, it's a whole different story. Normally, yes, uh, yes, I was exactly. Anyway, I I thought it was a funny way for uh, Bo Wood, who was who had to deal with Marge. Uh, 60 cents out of my pocket. So <laughs> you never know. You, you, you never know. Did you have a favorite gig in there? Was it the sports talk show that you had that you just mentioned? Was it, um, uh, did you calling say favorite s- gig gig? Yeah. Uh, no, I was doing golf. I was going to say that. Was, wow. You see, I, I, I yeah, kind that, of that sensed was... that that's where you were going, that the golf gig has to be, the best yeah absolutely uh i was uh i was flabbergasted when i call got a call from nbc uh for me to uh, um they wanted me to audition for golf um in uh honolulu oh. in two weeks tough gig uh yeah <laughs> And I and I said uh, the producer at that time was a guy named Larry Cirillo. And when I uh, I said, of course I'll audition for golf in Honolulu in two weeks. Yes. Uh, I have absolutely nothing else to do. Uh, so I get there, and uh, we are staying at a place called the Kahala Hilton, which I still believe was one of the great hotels hotels in the world, and the and the, the tournament was adjacent to the hotel. So that's a pretty good gig. But I finally got to the producer, again, named Larry Cirillo, and I said, why me? And he said, uh, we know you play golf, uh, and my wife loves your voice and thinks it would sound good doing golf. So that's how I, that was my opportunity. And then... Um, I also knew back then we we didn't have a lot of tournaments and we were not connected to the PGA or the USGA that does all the opens, um, uh, senior men's, women's, and kids. But we we did the Bob Hope Desert Classic. We did the uh, Hawaiian Open. There were the, there were the uh, women's tournament. 
on Maui, and they they were building up the golf coverage. And uh, so I I mean I passed the test I guess, and um, I ended up doing that for I think eight years, um, uh, three Ryder Cups, uh, and that was Jim without question the greatest uh, sporting event I've ever been associated with. Those three uh, Ryder Cups. Where were they? Uh, Where were the three? The one was at Kiowa. Uh, the other one was at the Belfry in England, and then the third was at uh, Oak Hills in uh, Rochester, New York. Yeah, wow. And uh, I, I, I still just get chills thinking of standing on the practice tee, and Arnold Palmer walks up, and he's always giving me a dig about the Steelers beating the Bengals. <laughs> Greg Norman walking up and saying, asking me, "Do you ever have knee surgery? I just had a procedure on my knee." And 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 and, uh, and the friendship with Payne Stewart and Paul Azinger. Oh man, they they were they were great football fans and were always interested. And uh, uh, they uh, NBC supplied us with cars so we could go to the hotel and from the hotel at various tournaments and. And uh, one day I'm in a parking lot about to leave in Tiger Woods and a guy named Mike Cowan, uh, name on tour Fluff, who was his first caddy. Columbus guy. Yeah, I, I, I had met Fluff because he had been a uh, a caddy for Peter Jacobson. And uh, Fluff waved to me and uh, I said, what's up? And he said, we need to ride back to the hotel. You mind? No. So flopping Tiger Woods get in the back of the car and I'm a driver for the two of them back to wherever the hotel was I don't remember uh, I mean I I know how football players feel sweat smell you know but but to have those golfers I I, I, I aspired to be a golfer from a very young age and I'm just too big to play golf too tall too many arms going 12 different directions. Yeah. I could never play it like those guys, but uh, it, it, it was absolutely doing the golf was the pinnacle, the zenith uh, as far as I was concerned. But the, the, the downside was as NBC picked up more golf and then we signed on with the USGA, um, I couldn't do the radio show anymore. Yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't call it sports talk with Bob Trumpy and Bob Trumpy not be there as much as I was going to be gone. So right. ended my sports talk. Well, it's a good way to end it though. I mean, that golf yeah. game had to be tremendous. Yes, it was. Yes, it was very nice. And I'm telling you, the Ryder cup was, was King. Absolutely King. I had the good fortune to take my attorney with me, uh, up to Rochester, New York, Ruben Katz. And uh, he was an avid golfer, and um, we hung out with everybody, and everybody knew Ruben more than they knew me through uh, his association with Bench Rose and Perez. Yeah. So it was great fun. Oh, I bet. And, and I, Brenneman. He represented Brenneman and Maxall yeah. and all kinds of people. Oh, yeah. Now, speaking of Brenneman, I, I got to, you know, I had never met you until you – 
came around the ballpark, and then I found out that you made this a tradition that at least one day a year during a weekday day game, you would come and sit in the booth with Marty every year, yes. right? Yes. Which I think is awesome because the pre-meal before the game in the press dining is always, the for us, the funnest part of the day because we're just shooting the breeze. And to be able to sit there and just have – just be a fly on the wall and listen to you two talk was a joy. Yeah, well, we don't treat each other with much respect. I but know, that's why it was so fun. We love each other like brothers. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the thing that sealed it was, uh, this is during the, uh, the sports talk era, we did a charity event for uh, the Kidney Foundation, and included was uh, Rose and uh, Marty and Tom Brenneman spoke there. I, at, at that time, my broadcast partner was a guy named uh, Sam Nover out of Pittsburgh. He flew in. Uh, Bryant Gumbel was going to fly in and then at the last second couldn't make it. But uh, Brenneman was kind of a host. And uh, I asked him to do it for, for the Kidney Foundation. And from that point on, uh, it, 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 we're, it's very difficult for either one of us to be serious about anything when in, when in each other's company. We are constantly ragging each other, and <laughs> I, I get on him for the way he dresses, and and uh, he gets on me for who knows what. So it, it's never ending, and it's been going on for fifty years. And Nux used to be a part of it. Joe Nuxall was yeah. part of it. So we never stop just ragging each other unmercifully. When you're sitting in the booth with Marty and Joe or just listening or whatever, you know what? When things are going on at the time, we we don't realize, oh, hey, these are the best days of our lives or you realize yep, greatness. Did you realize, I mean, just how special, how good those guys were at you the time? You mean the Reds in the 70s? Yeah, Marty and Joe. Yeah, oh, Marty and Joe, no. No, I had no idea. Uh, but I, I can tell you, Jim, that uh, uh, even during my playing career, you see, you got to understand that, that I grew up in Illinois in the middle of the state, uh, a small town south of Peoria named Tremont, and then we moved to Springfield, which was the state capital of Illinois. And uh, baseball to me was always – a sound. It was never a sight. I went to one game uh, in St. Louis, courtesy of my high school girlfriend's parents at the time, uh, to see the St. Louis Cardinals play somebody. I don't remember who it was. But uh, where I lived, I had one of those cheap Sony uh, Japanese radio radios, that, 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 you know, about the size of a phone now. It came in a little leather case. And on a good night, I could hear uh, Jack Brickhouse broadcasting the uh, Chicago White Sox uh, from Chicago. And uh, I could also hear um, Harry Carey and, uh, geez, what what was the pitcher, uh, the Wabash Cannonball uh, for the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, Dizzy Dean. I could hear Dizzy Dean from St. Louis. So, so baseball to me has always been a sound. Mm -hmm. And 
I can't tell you how many nights I went to sleep, bothering the hell out of my wife, but went to sleep with the radio on, listening to Marty and Joe um, give the uh, the final out. Uh, I remember Seaver's no hitter. Uh, you know, it, it, I always listened at night, and and uh, Marty and Joe always treated me great. They they welcomed me into the booth and enjoyed my company. I enjoyed theirs, and I told uh, when when uh, Nux died, and they had the uh, the memorial at at Hamilton High School. I drove up there. And uh, the line was uh, out the building, uh, around the parking lot, about four or five times, uh, down the street, up the hill, over to the next block. And I thought, I'm going to be here for days. And then Channel 5 was broadcasting um, the, the ceremony or whatever it was. And I saw one of the guys on the crew, and I said, uh, is, is there a back door in this place? Do I have to get at the back of the line? And he uh, he uh, showed me the back door, and I walked in and went through and saw Don Zetta and Kim and, and Jim Ferguson and his wife were there. And Brenneman came in, and uh, when we got done, we walked out together out the back door, and I said, Brenneman, you, you understand, you and I are both going to hell because we cut in line in front of all those people <laughs> to pay tribute to pay tribute to Nux. So you know that at some point we're going to be together in hell just doing that. And we laughed about that for 20 minutes, and, he, and, and Brenneman said, Nux would have loved that. So, oh. I mean... He would have definitely loved that. You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> you never know. You know, you've had a career of you never know. In fact, you never know. You should, it might you be a title for your book. Never know. You never know. Have you ever written a book? Uh, yeah, Trump. Ten years with the Bengals. Yeah, that's what I thought. But have you? How about your just the, the stuff we've broadcast? talked about? No. Broadcast. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, there you go. You got a title if you ever do it. You never know. You never know. Very good. You're absolutely right. <laughs> and you could just keep saying, you know, you tell a story and then in, it, yep, in, yep, yep, in yep. the chapter with, you just never know. Yeah, you just never know. What uh, What are you doing now? I know you've a longtime Cincinnati resident and you, you, you know, yeah, Illinois well, kid. I'm, and what made you stay here? I'm professionally retired. Yes. Uh, I, I'm, I think I'm very good at it. Uh, I've lived in the same place for the same village for uh, almost 50 years and the same wow. house for the last 30 years. And uh, included on my property is what we refer to as a carriage house out in the back of the property. I have a big uh, woodworking shop where um, I'm out there doing something almost every day. And uh, uh, I'm also, uh, it turns out, I am a very good grandparent. Nice. So, uh, uh, so I got three here and three, Pens three in Pennsylvania that I try to keep constant contact with. And and Mrs. Trumpy and I are doing fine. That is tremendous. It's 54 years of marriage. 54 years. Yep. I knew her uh, 
three weeks, married her in two months, and 54 years later, we're still together. You just never know. Yeah. She was crazy back then, and she's crazy now to hang around. <laughs> uh, I can relate, although I'm only 10 years in. Uh, 10? Only 10. I got married later. and Yeah, yeah you sure did. Got married later, but uh, wow. I'm so happy to hear that uh, you're doing well and uh, 54 years of marriage and what a career to look back on and uh, your grandkids. Uh, I'm sure everyone listening right now is, is happy to hear that Bob Trumpy's doing well because I know there are thousands out there like me that you are just, <laughs> I mean, we logged hundreds of hours listening to you. Thousands uh, well, of hours listening to you. I appreciate you being interested. Oh. Are you kidding me? I I, I want to have I, I have, like I told you off the air, I, I could talk to you for eight hours straight about stuff. I mean, there's there's stuff I could bring up and get into that might spur some memories. I, I would love to have you back sometime if you if you're interested in the future. Sure. I don't know what we've left out, but sure. Oh, there'd be there's plenty no problem. left out. Plenty left out. We'll, uh, maybe we'll, we'll hook up you and Marty on the same podcast. Oh my gosh. <laughs> How about that? I'm not sure that's even broadcast, uh, worthy. <laughs> oh, I got bleeps. I can bleep out. Stuff. Need a sensor. <laughs> I'll be the sensor and I can bleep some uh, stuff out. We're supposed to have lunch, uh, in a couple of weeks. So oh, very it'll good. be right back to where we're at. That, that's the one thing about, uh, Brenneman and I. Uh, we, we, I haven't seen him since a uh, uh, year and a half ago when he was last in the booth. Yeah. And I was there for my uh, my annual visit in the booth. That's the last time I saw him. But 30 seconds into us being together again, we'll be right back to where we were <laughs> a year and a half ago or 50 years ago. Yeah, that is Dragging the, on each other unmercifully. Yep, that is the beauty of uh, true friendships and lifelong yep, friendships. I, I agree with you. I, I, There's several people that that uh, I've kept in contact with same way. Uh, I called Costas the other day, not the other day, uh, what, last fall when he announced that he was retiring. Mm-hmm. And 30 seconds into a conversation with him, we're right back to where we were. I'm tall and he's short. And we never fit in the picture. And he looked like a, a emblem on my sport coat. And, no uh, Burt Reynolds milk crate around. Yeah, absolutely. It, it never stopped. And he, by the way, was getting his driver's license renewed in the city of New York, and he called me. At, I called him at like 9.15 in the morning. He said, I'll call you when I get done getting my license. He called me back at 3.30, and I said, what the hell is this? You really treat me nicely, you know? He called me back at 3.30. He says, hey, I just got done. What? You showed up at 9.15 to get your license renewed, and you're done at 3.30? Why are you still staying there? And he's a New York kid. Top to bottom. Yeah. So, no doubt. Well, it never This has been tremendous. Uh, thank you so much. I, I, My I, pleasure. I love a conversation when I learn something I didn't know, like you spending a couple of days with Jesse Owens and how emotional it made you and, and Neil Armstrong and uh, 
<laughs> Burt Reynolds, who uh, yep. he was one of those guys that I think everyone idolized in the seventies, wanted to be Burt Reynolds, uh, but he had to stand <laughs> on a milk crate to be. I guarantee you, Jim, you're much taller than Burt Reynolds is. <laughs> I'm about six two and a half, six three. So yeah. yeah. Uh, I well, can... this is my first podcast, podcast, and it's gone very comfortably. This is the first podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. wow. I'm still not sure exactly what it is. We need some. Well, you know, it's just like a regular radio interview, but it's just on demand where people can pick yeah, it up and listen you. at any time. So you explained it to me. I understand. I am honored to do the first podcast with you. That is now if I would have said back then when I'm a little young guy listening to Bob Trumpy, who I'm like, I want to be Bob Trumpy. <laughs> and one day, even though I wouldn't have known what a podcast, what the hell that was. At the time, like, I'm going to record the first podcast with Bob Trumpy. Wow. Well, feather in my I cap, would, my friend. A I feather would hope in my when cap. you think back on it, just as I described the radio show, that yeah. it was, you, you never know. It's just a safari. You, you just, you just never you know. You just never know. And we'll end it on that. Appreciate it, okay. Bob. Godspeed yep. to you and uh, your family and enjoy the grandkids and. Uh, your wood shop, and just enjoy life. You deserve it. Yep, I do. That is Bob Trumpy, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thanks for checking us out here on the Jim Day Podcast. And uh, as we said, uh, on down the road, who's going to be on the podcast? Well, you just never know. Till next time, so long, everyone. <laughs>